And so today, as I've said already, if you have your Bibles with you, open them to the Gospel of Luke. We are back in the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be in chapter 9, beginning in verse 37. As a preface, let me just say this to the message from last week, because I think a few of you, a few people came in this morning and they, they held up these Luddite versions of the Bible and they, they, they said to me, look, I brought my Bible, right? Because last week I, I made a specific point about um, technology versus a printed version of the Bible. And the point wasn't to say, please hear me, that all technology is bad and that all, uh, none of you can control yourselves, you know, and, and actually be able to look at the, the text on your iPhone or a tablet and, and not at the same time see notifications and texts and get distracted. But the point was to be in the Word. And I got to tell you, like, I, I'm your pastor, right? I'm the guy who prepares the Word every week, and I am so used to being on my laptop or on my iPad doing the research and writing the messages that I rarely open this at home. Why? Because it's all online, and I, if I need to copy and paste text from uh, the, the Scripture, I can do it much more easily on my laptop or on my iPad. But here's what I noticed this week when I, I actually opened up to chapter 9, where we're going to be at in Luke's Gospel today, and I went, oh, wow, <laughs> I can actually see the whole context of where we are. You can't actually see that that well on your iPhone or on your iPad. And so that's why I encourage that, but also so that we not be overly distracted. So on that note, read with me beginning in verse 37 of chapter 9. I'm going to read our text for today, and then I'm going to pray one more time, and then we'll dive in. Read with me, chapter 9, verse 37 to 45. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him, met Jesus. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him, and it will hardly leave him alone. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy. He healed the boy. And he gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered unto the hands of men. But they did not understand the saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about the saying. Pray with me, would you? Father, we just want to thank you for this opportunity here to gather, to gather around your word. Um, we thank you for this recollection, uh, this record that Luke has orderly accounted for us of the life and the ministry of Jesus, and particularly this event. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray today that uh, as you were with him and with them at that time, we pray that you'd be with us today. Help us to see what is truly going on here and help us to grow and uh, to be transformed and to be strengthened in our faith, in our faith in Jesus and your word. And I pray these things in his worthy name. Amen. So those of you who were with us beginning last December, 
December 2017, that is, over a year ago, we began this gospel. We've taken a couple of breaks throughout the year, but we started in December 2017, and we're only in chapter 9, so, you know, sometime in my lifetime, hopefully, we will finish this gospel. But it's, I hope you've seen that it's been quite amazing. And you'll remember how Luke opened his gospel, right? In the very beginning, he gave us, he gave us his purpose for writing this gospel. He didn't just jump in and say, blessed and bless and let's go. He, he gave us a purpose. He really outlined for us why he was writing this account. We also learned early on that, that Luke himself was a Greek pagan, uh, a Gentile who had come to faith through the ministry of the apostles, and most believe that it was through the apostle Paul himself. We learned that he was a physician, so we call him Dr. Luke. Uh, we also learned that he was a theologian in part, um, and that he was his, an historian. He loved to keep records, historical accounts. We also learned that he had this specific purpose in mind for writing not only the Gospel of Luke, but the book of Acts, right? And, and they're really bookends. They're, they're one follows the other, and he wrote them one after the other in his lifetime, which is amazing. And the purpose was so that his good friend, who was also a Greek pagan, uh, we believe a Roman official, a governor of some kind, whose name was Theophilus, he wanted his good friend Theophilus, and I believe by extension the Holy Spirit wanted you and I today to have certainty, certainty concerning what he had been taught. So I want to repeat just the introduction, the first four verses with you this morning, just so we, we get that framework in mind as we look forward this morning. He begins with these words, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the Lord have delivered them to us. So Luke begins by telling us some interesting details. First, many before him have written accounts, narratives, stories about the life of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus, and he's aware of those. And he's also seen that there, the, the, he's always also talking about those, look at these words, these things accomplished among us. And so he's also talking about a period of time here where he was active. If you read the book of Acts, and when we went through the book of Acts a few years ago, you'll notice in the book of Acts, it gets to a point where all of a sudden Luke, rather than talking about they and them, all of a sudden he starts using the word we. And so again, theologians and commentators uh, believe that that's the point at which Luke joined the mission and went on missionary trips with, because he's including himself in what is happening. So first he highlights the fact that he's been part of this ministry from the beginning, and probably part of the ministry of Paul, and going around from various place to place, planting churches. And he's been part of that. And so he's been with the disciples, with the apostles, after the life of Jesus, because he himself did not meet Jesus. He did not know Jesus. So secondly, he adds that these events have also been recorded in the past, by the apostles. Uh, other writers have been writing things in the past. And so you'll remember during this series that we've asked several times, I've asked rhetorically, well, how, how did Luke know that? I mean, you know, how did, how did he know what Mary sang after Elizabeth told her that in her womb was baby Jesus? How, how did he know? Well, probably for three ways that he might have known. First, he had always at this point in time at these writings, he would have had probably the actual writings of Mark and of Matthew. Now, it's interesting, in neither one of those Gospels do we see the Song of Mary, the Magnificat, where she sings out. 
So we also realize that, secondly, he would have actually interviewed some of the key eyewitnesses, one of whom most likely would have been Mary herself, who would have again been still alive at that time. And then finally, it's interesting, he would have also, of course, remember this. What's interesting is he traveled with Paul. He traveled with the other apostles as well. He would have heard over a period of probably somewhere of 20 plus years that he was with Paul in ministry, traveling along. He would have heard Peter, James, John, Paul preaching every Sunday or every day. In the case of Paul, when he was in the Decapolis, right, and preaching in, into the, 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 the community hall. And so it's very interesting that we see this. So here's what I want us to see today. I want us to see this point before we dive back into chapter 9. It is this. Luke didn't open his gospel and simply say this. He didn't open it and say, I want you to have certainty just about the life and times of Jesus and what Jesus had to say. I want you to have certainty about the whole thing, about the whole word of God. I think that's a very important point. You see, Luke seemed to believe, for some reason, that he could write a narrative that would, not could, give us certainty. Now, that word in the Greek, the word certainty, is beyond reproach. It's like proof, positive. It's certainty. Done. Check the box. Believe that. There's no more debate required on that, that we would have certainty. So it's interesting, and this was and is, I believe, the goal. But, but clearly, even in that day, clearly, even in that day, people, that's why he's writing to Theophilus, people, people questioned, right? People had their doubts. People would hear the preaching of Peter and Paul and James and others. They would hear the stories of the, the, the virgin birth, and they would go, really? Is that true? And, and so Luke had to write about that. Paul oftentimes would write, and he would use the phrase, that you may know that you may know. And again, that word, know, in the Greek is like, it's, it's an imperative, it's indicative, it's like perfect tense that you would know without any question. And so, not only in that day, of course, but right from the very beginning, right? In Genesis, what was the enemy's tactic? Did God really say? <laughs> it's, it's been, the, it's, it's been the, the, the attack on the Word of God, on what God has to say, has been going on since the very, very beginning. And so Luke had to address that. He had to speak into that. And I know today, let me just as an aside before we jump ahead, say this. Oftentimes we hear in our world today that people are like, because, you know, there are very difficult things that the Bible teaches us. And so people are often talking about, well, I'm on a journey to discover (laughs) what the Bible is actually saying. I want to suggest to you that that is often a diversion that is birthed out of uncertainty. It's birthed out of uncertainty. In fact, it's clear from the writings of some of those in the church today that that certainty is not the goal at all. In fact, the word has become kind of like a bad word. It's actually been put out there like, well, sound doctrine. Oh, man, that's really, that's pretty narrow. That's pretty fundamentalist. And, and, And so there's a question about whether it's actually been seen as a bit of a problem that people in the church are very certain about certain things that the Bible has to say. I highlight this for you today because, listen, I, I want to I be honest about my goal <laughs> as your pastor, as a preacher. I, I think today the goal of every pastor, every preacher, and every Christian for that matter is to have certainty. Th- th- there's no other reason to pick up your Bible and to listen to sermons and, and 
other than to go, yes, I believe that to be true. Next, <laughs> and move along. That's the goal. It was Jesus' goal, I believe. It was Paul's goal, as I've already said, that he repeatedly uses the phrase, that you may know. That you may know these things to be true. So what about things that we should be certain about so far in the Gospel of Luke? How many things should we be certain about in the Gospel of Luke, right? I mean, the angel Gabriel, an angel comes from the throne of God with a message to Zechariah and to Mary. Do we believe in angels? Do we believe with certainty that that actually happened? Jesus was born of a virgin. That's what Luke tells us. Should we be certain about that? I've often had uh, people who are doubting or skeptical ask me, listen, is it possible for me to become a Christian and be a Christian, but not really believe that Jesus was born of a virgin? Friends, some of you might be going, well, that, that's an easy answer. But there are actually churches today would say, no, no, you don't need to believe that. You need to believe God is love, that he loves you, and that Jesus died for you to prove God's love for you. And that's, that's where you need to come to faith in Jesus. Friends, if Jesus is not born of a virgin, then he's not the Jesus that can save you. That's the truth of the scripture. So we know that so far. What about the shepherds coming to him, the healings and the miracles, lepers being cleansed, paralytics, sight to the blind, power over nature, winds, water, raising people from the dead, forgiving sins, power over evil, Satan and his minions, feeding 5,000 people. Do we believe those things with certainty? <laughs> I got the t-shirt, and I know most of you do. So now after uh, this long intro, some of you might be asking, Glenn, you read the text for us. What does this introduction have to do with our text for today? Everything. Everything. Our text today is about belief versus unbelief. That's what our text is about. So your message uh, title for today is Victory Over Belief. Hope to show you this in three ways. Number one, believe the word. Believe the resurrection. Be victorious. I want to show it to you that way. Number one, believe the word. Let's look at our text. On the next day when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met Jesus. Now, those of you, again, with uh, really good memories will remember on November 25th, we were in the passage which is called the transfiguration of Jesus, right? Um, it is what happened the day before. It was about 18 months into the ministry of Jesus' earthly ministry. He takes his three lead guys, Peter, James, and John, up onto the mountain, right? And, and who appears up there with Jesus? Elijah and Moses, two men who were dead, who obviously are still alive, and are, well, physically, spiritually alive, and they're there on the mountaintop with Jesus. Peter, James, and John see Jesus, and what they see is they see that Jesus' face, his body is glowing white, dazzling white through his clothing. And so what we learned is, is that they, they actually experienced the glory of God. Now, I did a little bit more reading on that because I, I had some questions myself, and, and the reality is, is that th this is Jesus being seen literally in his glorified body, in the same body that he would have after his resurrection, that he's being seen there. Th this is an incredible, incredible experience. Now, we also learned in that message that we looked at on November 25th that in the Old Testament, anyone who comes into contact or the presence of the glory of God would immediately be what? Vanquished. 
And so no one could. So, so why were these men able to experience that and, and, and survive? Jesus. Jesus was with them, in the flesh, was with them, being a literal expression of being the light of this world. And so now, and now, on the next day, they walked down the mountain. They walked down the mountain. I have to emphasize that for you. And, I mean, think about it. This is, this is amazing. They walked down the mountain, and we see what it tells us happens. But it's, it's kind of interesting. I mean, I, I mean, think about it. If you're Peter, James, and John, Peter especially. Remember, Peter was the guy who was like, oh, Jesus, this is amazing. Elijah and Moses are here, and you're here, and you're in your glory. I mean, this, l- let me build three tents, and we can keep this mountaintop experience going on for a while. Because isn't this where we want to stay? And, and now Jesus is going, let's go down. <laughs> let's go down the mountain. And so they follow him down. They, they've got to be thinking, I mean, they've got to be thinking at this point in time, okay, say, Jesus, now that we've seen this, and now that we've seen Elijah and Moses been introduced to them, and we know we know, we heard the, 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 your, the Father from heaven saying, listen to him that you're the son of the most high God. Isn't now the time to set up your kingdom? And instead, <laughs> Jesus heads back down the mountain. And who shows up? The crowds. R- through the whole gospel, nine chapters. How many times have we seen the crowds, right? The crowds keep showing up. So why? What, what's going on here? Why is this happening? Why does Jesus not enact his kingdom right now at this point in time? Well, you've got this mountaintop experience, exhilarating experience that Peter anyway wanted to turn into a forever event, and now this. And again, I ask why. Well, I think the answer is clearly, this is real life. That mountaintop experience, boys, is not real life. That's what's coming. That, that may even occasionally occur here, but never quite like that. No, this is real life. And in real life, there is trouble. There is darkness. There is a battle. And the reality is that we live in a fallen and broken world. I, I just can't imagine being Peter and James and John and coming down after that experience and coming back into this and going... Lord, end this. Well, we've just come through another Christmas season, so let me ask you this. For many of you, I would suggest that it was a really joyous and wonderful time. I hope that's true for all of you. That was the hope anyway, wasn't it? That, you know, we get all excited about summer, uh, Christmas, pardon me, being perfect, summer too, Christmas being perfect, and we're going to have this joyous time. It's going to be a mountaintop experience. It's going to be better than last year. We're, yes, we're going to have the in-laws and the outlaws here, but still, it's going to be awesome, right? It's going to be a wonderful experience. So we make plans to ensure that hopefully it's going to be that kind of experience. On the other hand, for some of us, this Christmas may have been. No, this Christmas was difficult. This Christmas was difficult. There have been some real battles, right? There are real battles. The mountaintop experience for some of us in our church, let alone our community and our world, became a valley pretty quickly. So let's be careful. For those of us who did have a wonderful Christmas, let's remember this, please. It's not the norm. 
I'm glad for you. I'm very happy for you. I'm happy for myself. We had a great Christmas in so many ways, although things could have gone sideways at any moment. So let's be careful. It's not the norm. It's virtually impossible to maintain. And, and why? Because the truth is, the truth is, life is hard. There are battles, suffering, pain, death happens. It happens. And so, I don't know about you, but what, what do you and I normally do? Right? What, what do we normally do and often do? When, when we're just coasting along and it seems like our world is actually, maybe not at the top of the mountain, but it seems to be trending up and to the right, right? Everything seems to be rosy. It's getting better all the time. Favorite song of mine when I was little. And, and it looks good, right? We tend to, listen, I'll tell you what I tend to do, and I think most of us tend to do, is we tend to forget about how dark it is out there. We tend to, yeah, okay, it's dark for somebody else and I'll pray for them, but hey. We also tend to forget how dark, quite frankly, our own hearts and our own circumstances really are. We forget. And unfortunately what happens sometimes, sometimes, and I'm grateful that for most of you that this is not the case, especially if our fa faith in Christ and in a sovereign God is strong, sometimes it's possible when darkness does reveal itself, we can get to the point where we're like, why is this happening to me, God? Why are you letting this happen to me? So at the beginning of the story, I want you to see the good news. <laughs> the good news is Jesus knows that, th yeah, this is the mountaintop, guys. This is it. This is going to be as, as good as it gets. Actually, it's better. It's going to be amazing when everyone who has faith and trust in me is there. But the good news, Jesus has come. And he's come for this reason. Jesus has come. He leaves the mountaintop, the presence of the glory of God, his Father, who he's already left once, right? To come into this broken world and to save us. And he enters into all of our battles. Jesus comes down that mountain that day because there are people at the bottom in that valley who are broken. And they need him. They need him badly. So, so let me ask you this. Do you believe that on the mountaintop? Of course you do. I do. What about the valleys? I struggle with that. Anybody else? Struggle in the valleys? Struggle in the valleys. So, this is what I want us to see. At the end of the day is, isn't it true that what we're doing in the valleys when we cry out, God, why are you letting this happen to me? Are we not basically saying that we do not trust the Word of God? Now, there are a few things, I think, going on in this text that we might look at and question, and especially Jesus' response. Seems a little bit harsh when he responds to this situation to the Father, but about why the, the apostles couldn't cast out the demon. Now, to better understand that, we actually need to go back in this chapter to the first two verses um, in chapter 9. So let me put them on screen for you, and this will help us unpack and understand what's going on here. You'll remember that on this day, he called the 12 together, his 12 apostles, and he gave them power and authority over all the demons to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. So, so, so Jesus 
anoints them with the power and the authority to accomplish this, these things, and then he sends them to go and do these things. You know what I don't see here? I don't read anywhere in the Scripture here or in the other passages where he sends the apostles, the disciples, out to do this particular ministry. I, I, don't, I don't read anywhere where he says, by the way, this power and authority is only for the next 72 hours. I don't read that. I, I don't see him saying that. I used to kind of think that, to be honest with you. I was like, well, they're the apostles. I'm not one of them. But I don't read that. And, and we know, in fact, we know, you remember what, what, what happened, right? They, they come back, and in verse 10, it says that they told him, let's look at this, all that they had done. So they've actually been gone a few weeks, and they come back, and they, they're, they're, we don't get all the details, but obviously they had the power and authority to cast out demons and to heal people, and it was happening. But th there's a little bit of a hint, a little bit of a clue there uh, as to a problem, isn't it? It's all they had done. And so maybe even when they're coming back and explaining this to Jesus, they may have thought that, hey, okay, we got this, Jesus. We've got this power and authority now. Maybe this was in our own strength going forward. We can just muster this up. We know the secret. Come out in Jesus' name, right? What, however, whatever the way it was supposed to be done, they may have developed some personal confidence that was probably not a good idea. Well, now back to our story that we were reading today in our text. It goes on and says this, And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth, and it shatters him, and it will hardly leave him. So we've seen this, I think, repeatedly so far in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus is always followed by these large crowds. He's always followed by these large crowds. And despite the fact of the crowd mentality that we've always seen, they come for the good food, for, for the free healings, but, but not for the, the healer himself or for the word. But despite that, Jesus, <laughs> Jesus keeps serving them and keeps loving on them and keeps coming to those crowds. And so as we have already noted, there's a battle going on here, and obviously this is a spiritual battle. This boy is possessed by a demon. And it's also no coincidence, look at this, I want you to think about it this way, it's no coincidence that our enemy attacks our children. If you think about it in the Gospel of Luke so far, how many times have there been circumstances where it's been about a child or, or someone who's younger, right, that um, is being attacked? And I think one of the reasons why that, many of you who have young teenagers <laughs> or have had young teenagers, you know that there's a point in their lives where it's pretty clear. The idols of this world, that there's an attack going on in their lives and in their hearts. Why would that be? Why would be that be the, 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 the target of the enemy? Well, one of the key reasons has to be their, their faith is just being formed. It's just being formed. Hopefully, it's been, there's been a good foundation as they're growing in their home, hearing the Word of God, seeing mom and dad modeling their Bibles open, going to church, teaching them about Christ. But their faith is still being formed. And so here's another question for you. What do you and I usually do in those circumstances? Well, most of you know that we have three boys, Andrew, Matthew, and Jonathan. Um, we got things almost perfectly right with Jonathan. <laughs> Not quite, but... Uh, you know, he's 23, he's getting there. 
But, you know, um, I, I can be honest in my own life, and I, and I know this in some of your lives is true, but I, I know in, in our lives it was all about, well, um, okay, we need to be worrying, we need to worry and fret about their circumstances. We need to worry about, like, what kind of schooling they're getting. Uh, we need to worry about what they're watching on television, you know, and, and we need to worry about um, what kind of friends they're hanging out with, you know, and, and what kind of video games they're playing or not, because we wouldn't allow them in the home. Janice was brutal on that. The, the boys grew up and they called it child abuse. But anyway, um, they all believe in Jesus today, so it worked, okay? Like, but seriously, my response, our response generally is to worry, is it not? To, to try to control the circumstances so that they will be healthier and protected. I'm not saying that any of those things are bad. But that's, that's not it. <laughs> At the end of the day, is it? question is, do you and I put them in front of Jesus as often as we can? That, that's kind of the heart of what I was trying to get at last week about this distracted world that we live in and, and having a Bible open in the homes. Do, do, you, do we do that by being in front of Jesus in our own lives personally? Do our parents? Jonathan actually came after the sermon last Sunday. He came to us in the morning. I can't remember what morning it was, but he came to us, Janice and I, and he goes, you know, guys, like Dad, I really like that point you made about the, the Bible and having it open and stuff like that. And he goes, I remember when I was a little boy and I'd come into your bedroom and you guys would be having coffee and you'd be sitting there reading your Bibles together. He goes, you don't seem to do that anymore. Okay, <clears throat> I'm sorry, but I just confessed that, didn't I? Well, but it's, I, I'm, son, it's on my iPad. <laughs> Lame, Dad. So, yeah, anyway, do we do that? Do we do that? That's what's happening here, isn't it, with this man? Look what 41 and 40, 40 and 41 says as the story goes on. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. So there's a lot going on here, but um, let's begin with Jesus' reaction. Bring your son here. I, I, I just love that. I mean, Jesus does rebuke his disciples, doesn't he? But it, it's, it's not like, Sir, I'm sorry, I can't help you. No, it's bring your son here. Bring your son to me. So let's look at that. Let's start with the father. We've already seen this. Number one, he has brought his son to the disciples, to the place where Jesus is, where the power and authority of the Most High God is, right? Because he's heard that this man is the Son of God and he can heal. And even his disciples have had that power. It's been spread. They've been going from town to town with power and healing and casting out demons. So he has brought his son to Jesus. But secondly, B, before he gets to Jesus, he, he's already begged Jesus' disciples to cast out the demon, to confront the darkness, but they, they can't. <laughs> they can't do it. So as I've already said earlier, and as we've noted, they, they've already been given the power and the authority, right, directly by Jesus to deal with this exact same kind of situation, but they were unable to do it. So the question is, what happened? <laughs> what happened? Well, it prompts Jesus to say what he says without the context, which without the context which we've already had, we might misunderstand. 
he says, O faithless and twisted generation, to his disciples, looking them straight in the eye. Now, that's a dart. That's a dart. So, in this text here, we see that this father's response is, after years and years and years and years of this going on, to take his son to Jesus. He's done everything he could, right? And, and you should. But he's taking his son directly to Jesus. And Jesus asks the father, when he does that in Mark's gospel, which is interesting, another side note that you should know is that this particular story, this text, follows the transfiguration in both Matthew and Mark's gospel as well. So clearly, this event with certainty happened, and it happened the next day directly after the mountaintop to the valley. It's intentional, and it happened. In Mark's gospel, Jesus asks the father, when did this begin, this problem with your son? And the man tells Jesus, well, since childhood. And so we, we gather, he's likely probably a teen now, and we've seen the unbelief, the lack of faith of the apostles, the disciples, at least nine of them who were down the mountain because three went up, right? Let me show you what Mark, how Mark records this um, at this time. He says this in chapter 9 as well, verse 22 to 24. And it was often, this is the Father speaking, and it is often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, speaking to Jesus, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus answered, if you can, it's not a question mark, exclamation mark, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help me with my unbelief. Ah, for 2019, that would be a really good prayer, wouldn't it? I believe with certainty. Help my unbelief. Help my unbelief, Lord. So, friends, parents, listen. My question again is, are we modeling, are we, you and I, not just you as the parents, but us as the church, are we modeling, really, faith? Or are we sometimes modeling unbelief in the Lord to our children and to each other? So let's see this. This man's faith, which, which, which did not come from him, is what prompts Jesus, in fact, to say, bring your son here. Now, it's, it's, Jesus didn't do it if the man hadn't. Jesus was going to heal this boy. Jesus knew what his response would be, too, because faith was given to this man by the Holy Spirit of God, and that's why he responds that way. Now, you compare that to the unbelief of the disciples, and you can understand that their failure to overcome the darkness. But the failure, in the end, of the disciples was what? That they didn't summon up the power and the authority that was given to them? No, the failure was unbelief. Just a few weeks earlier, Jesus had said, go, I'm giving you the power and authority. They'd seen it demonstrated in their lives. The Word of God in the flesh had given them that power and told them they had it. And now, they didn't believe it. They didn't believe it. Our story goes on. While he was coming, this is the boy, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy. 
and he gave him back to his father. And all, all were astonished at the majesty, another word for glory, of God. This links this story to the transfiguration of the mountaintop in a beautiful, beautiful way. This demon, as all demons, the powers of darkness, they're never going to let go without a fight. They're not going to let go without a fight. And often, sadly, things get worse before they get better. And again, what's my tendency? What's our tendency? Give up. (laughs) I remember a time when Janice said to me, uh, and I won't mention which son it was, but he needs to leave the house. We give up. We just... Because in our own strength, we're trying to fix or teach our children to be good and to follow the Lord. So we notice also here, the closer this boy gets to Jesus, the closer and closer he gets to Jesus, they're gone. They're gone. They leave him immediately. He is healed. He is healed. So that's actually number one, long, long number one, believe in the word. Number two is believe in the resurrection. The follow-up to this story is, is amazing, the connection, and it says this, but while they were all marveling at everything Jesus said to his disciples, he said this, let these words sink into your ears. I, listen, I'm not trying to imply this, I wasn't there, but I just, I just have to believe from the language that Jesus, after saying, oh, faithless and twisted generation, in frustration with these young men, um, is also at this point in time going, come on, sink into your ears, listen. Man, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And then he closes, they closes with this. But they did not understand this saying, and it was conceive, concealed from them so that they might not, might not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Now, so, some people read these words and, and I have in the past, and been kind of confused, right, about what these really are speaking about and mean. And, and that, again, is understandable if we don't look at the full context. The context of what Luke is, why he's writing this gospel, what happened at the beginning of chapter 9, the transfiguration, mountaintop experience, valley, darkness, struggles. Again, I think what we see here is the crowd is seeing this mountaintop experience, you know, in the valley, <laughs> Jesus has come from the mountaintop to the valley and has healed this boy. It's a miracle. All are marveling at the glory of God and His majesty. And they're like, this is the way things should be. Can you do more of this? Can you do more of this? And I think Jesus is basically saying this to His disciples. Guys, guys, you think this is difficult. You think your current circumstances are difficult. You think this world is broken and and this is a big struggle and a battle now. You just wait until they take me, beat me, scourge me, and crucify me. You think this is trouble. Where's your faith going to be when that happens? It's quite preparatory, don't you think? Jesus had already told them this is going to happen once already, right? He's already told them this in the same chapter. 
You know, in the same point when he asks, who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Peter, the bold one, gets up, you are the Christ. You're the son of the living God. You're the Messiah. Woohoo! Peter got it right. Right after that, Jesus says these words. The son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. So, so look, in, in our story today, I want to bring this to a conclusion. First, we have the failure of the disciples to heal the young boy due to their unbelief in the Word of God, right? Not because they lacked the power, didn't have it, it was only given to them for 72 hours. No, because they lacked faith in the Word of God. And in the second instance, we essentially have the same thing. Their failure is now, however, to understand with certainty and believe what Jesus said would happen again due to their unbelief. But you and I, we all know how this turns out, right? We, we know how it turns out. We know that Jesus will actually tell them a total of three times that this is going to happen, and then we know that Jesus will go to Jerusalem, and we know that they will arrest him, and we know that they will beat him and scourge him and, and put him up on false charges, and we know that they will crucify him and that he will be dead and buried. We know all this. We know these things with certainty. And we will also know that he will rise from the dead. Just like he has promised. But we also know that in that day, when Jesus was dead and buried, were they all certain of that? No, they weren't, were they? I don't remember ever reading at that point in time any one of them stepping up and going, come on, guys, gals, don't you remember what he said? Let's just, let's just set up another Passover meal and get ready because like in three days, he's going to show up. Do you remember reading that? I don't. Unbelief, lack of faith in the resurrection. And they were told by the word of God that they should have faith and that this would happen. So, again, I've got to bring this back down to us today. Are we not the same today? Even though we're 2,018 years after the birth of Christ and almost that much longer, pardon me, from the cross, from the knowledge of all these things being true. I mean, life is good for most of us. We know that Jesus lived, that he died, yes, and he was buried and that he rose from the dead. We believed right? And, and based on our, our belief in that, we, we, we know that we have been saved and that we are children of God and that we've got fire insurance, right? It's, it's good, right? Life can just go on now, right? But what about the day-to-day? -day? What about when we're not on the mountaintop and things are not trending up and to the right, but we're in a valley, which we're all going to be in, in this life, and certainly, as this life comes to an end, we're all going to get there. There are going to be struggles. And the question is, where's our faith then? Where's our faith then? So, for your encouragement this morning, let me leave you with this, and that would be point number three. We can be victorious. We, we can be victorious. And let me put it to this way. I think there are three things that we can we can look to in order for us to be victorious. Number one, let me encourage you. Believe in the Word of God. All of it. 
It's all inspired. Not just the words of Jesus in the red letters. All of it is inspired. Believe it. In your simplest of readings, just believe the Word of God. Be in it. Read it every day, trusting the Holy Spirit to give you certainty, which is really another way of saying, I believe, help my unbelief. Give me faith. This particular teaching in our world and our culture today, whoa, that's hard. Give me faith. Give me certainty. Secondly, and this is important, obviously, trust that God is sovereign. You know that He is, right? You know that He is sovereign. I'll put a verse on screen that every one of you knows, written and recorded by the Apostle Paul, who got everything that he ever wrote, he says, directly from Jesus himself in the power of the Holy Spirit. But he tells us this in Romans 8, 28, and we know, right? That, that word is in the perfect tense. That's not that. We know a little bit, you know, we have an idea. We know that for those who love God, all things, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. So your purpose in my life right now, Lord, is that I'm going to be in a valley and I'm going to struggle and there are going to be battles and, I'm going to, and, and, and there's going to be darkness, but, but you're going to be there with me and you're going to help me through it and, and, uh, and I'm going to learn and grow through this and it's going to be awesome? Amen. In other words, believe in the resurrection. That's the mountaintop that we're looking for. Not, not the mountaintops that we can pay for in this life or that we can hope for in this life. That is the mountaintop. Amen? Well, that was, that was pretty weak. Okay, well then lastly, pray. Pray for this faith, right? Pray for this faith and for certainty and for the power to overcome the darkness. It's really interesting in Mark's gospel, and I'll leave you with this, how this story ends, right? The disciples kind of wake up. It's a really good thing. They kind of wake up, right? And, and it, it, it says this in Mark 9, 28 and 29. And when he had entered the house, when he had entered the house, sorry, I, I didn't mean that. I got back. There we go. When they had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately. I only put this part on screen. They, they actually followed him. They're like, why could we not do this? Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but by prayer. So that tells me, and I hope tells you this. If you are in Christ here today, you have the power and the authority in you. But it's not in your own strength. And the reality is if you're lacking it and it's lacking in someone else's life, let me encourage you, pray. Take it to Christ. Take it to Jesus. And on that note, pray with me, would you?